I'm John, and this is DOLW2, episode 17, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, volume 4, pages 911 to 923, skipping pages 913 to 917, which are notes. My colleague and friend Teresa has suggested to me that I should balance out my podcast with more talk about the Holy Spirit and not so much obsessing about the devil, and I agree, but I don't see any work of the Holy Spirit in these pederast priests and bishops or financially corrupt and corrupting members of the hierarchy or mediocre and incompetent men who have become and are becoming priests and bishops in the church as well as cardinals in it, not to mention the same kind of men who are ministers and deacons and bishops in the Protestant denominations or the communists and homosexuals who infiltrated the church, like the Greek soldiers who were hidden in the Trojan horse, brought into the city of Troy, and who came out when everyone was asleep, and opened the gates of the city, thereby allowing the Greek army to overrun Troy and destroy it. Everything that we have been talking about in our podcast, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church too, and that he will overcome all these forces of evil in the church and pray that the Holy Spirit will open my mind and heart to see more of his work in the church and help me to stop letting all of this evil obscure his presence and work in the church from me. But until he does so, that is the vast majority of what I and many other people are seeing in the church. He works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform and speaks in a still small voice, not lightning or thunder or earthquakes, while the followers of Satan in the church shout out their messages accompanied by a big brass band and speaking through bullhorns and have more and better public relations and media saturation with their messages than we do. The evil are, are always louder and more raucous in their bellowing for their sins than the good generally are in fighting against those sins, except for some of the saints, such as St. Dominic, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Jean Marie Vianney, and St. Thomas Aquinas. But blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. For the main reason that the proud and unmeek can't even control themselves, and so how could they control something far bigger than themselves, the earth, or leave anything left of it to inherit if they had their destructive and self-centered way with it, since their egotism and narcissism and belief that they are invincible and unbeatable as we saw with Adolf Hitler, who overreached himself and trying to inherit the earth. Napoleon Bonaparte, who did the same, and Count Alessandro Cagliostro, a Freemason, who tried to practice his Egyptian Freemasonry right under the nose of the Pope in Rome, and overreached himself through his egotism, and died in the fortress of San Leo at the hands of the Inquisition in 1795 strangled by his jailers, and filthy and lice-ridden, when he had formerly been hailed as a great healer and prophet throughout Europe. Pride goeth before disaster, and haughty spirit before fall. It is better to be humble with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. Proverbs 16, 18-19 These proud men, and many millions of others throughout history, undid themselves through their egotism. Pride, not self-respect or self-esteem, makes those afflicted by it 
unrealistic about themselves. So how could they be realistic about anything else or something much bigger than themselves, namely God? Their egotism, self-centeredness, and self-obsession hide God from their view and make them say there is no God. But though the moon is very much smaller than the sun, it can keep us from seeing the sun fully for a while anyway when it comes between us and the sun and even our hands though they are very much smaller than the moon can keep us from seeing the sun when we put them over our eyes likewise a person's microscopic egotism compared to the majesty and immenseness of god can keep him or her from seeing god when it comes between them and god the holy spirit is trying to teach us all humility which isn't thinking of ourselves as worthless since God doesn't make junk, but only sensibly acknowledging that any good in us comes from God. That is one work of the Holy Spirit in the church. For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mark 8:36. Then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord will pass by. There was a strong and violent wind, rending the mountains and crushing rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a small, still voice. When he heard this, Elijah hid his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. First Kings. 1911-13. We of the Diocese of Lansing Watch are also trying to be God's channel for his small, still small voice and a voice for the voiceless. We shouldn't let these perverted priests and bishops or financially corrupt or rotten personality mediocre and unfit for the priesthood and incompetent members of the hierarchy obstruct Jesus or God from our view any more than we let egotism block God and Jesus from our view because God and Jesus are still bigger than all of those people and will overcome all of them and separate the wheat from the chaff. And we have to keep that in mind. That is also the work and proof of the Holy Spirit in the church. We of the D-O-L-W are some of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8 if quoting scripture about Satan isn't obsessing too much about him. But he is only a paper tiger and stuffed toy lion that you have to pull a string on to make him roar and makes himself bigger, meaner, and badder than he actually is, as I said in Epistle 16, in episode 16. Since scripture also says, so submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you of two minds. James 4, 7-8 And a real lion can't always or usually be counted on not to attack you if you resist and turn away from him, but will usually pounce on you. Thus Satan is proved not to be a real lion, but just impersonating one and bluffing about himself. Jesus overcame this lion in the desert by quoting scriptures right back at him, since the devil can quote scripture for his purpose. 
Satan is no stronger or meaner or more terrifying for us than he was for Jesus. If we have Jesus in our hearts and fight him with the scriptures as Jesus did, he has become, he hasn't become worse since Jesus' time, but just wants to make us think that he has. Many people allowed the, many people allow the corruption and perversion in the Catholic Church and other Christian churches to keep them out of the church, even if not away from Jesus himself. And that isn't always or necessarily obsession about Satan. Mahatma Gandhi, one of the most, if not the most, Christ-like non-Christian who ever lived, loved the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus, but couldn't ever accept Christianity because he said, you Christians are nothing like Christ. It is often very hard to focus on Jesus, for me anyway and many others, with these rotten, perverted, incompetent, corrupt, and mediocre priests and bishops and Christians standing in the way between us and him. We ourselves aren't as much like Christ as we should be, and so stand in our own way between us and him quite often. So I go to Mass only for Jesus and a few other people anymore, and to get closer to him, not for the snobbishness and other sins that I find even among parishioners, since I have more than enough of my own with which to deal. Whoever will not receive you or listen to your words, go outside that house or town and shake the dust from your feet. Amen, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Matthew 10, 14 to 15. Whatever place does not welcome you or listen to you, leave there and shake the dust off your feet in testimony against them. Mark 6, 11. I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Luke 18, 18. Luke 18, 8. If this is still not enough about the Holy Spirit and too much about Satan, let me know and I'll try to do it better in my next podcast since I can't cover everything in one. And now, a reading from the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, pages 911 to 923, skipping pages 913 to 917. Cardinal Bernardin meets with Cook. On December 30, 1994, Bernardin met privately with Cook in Philadelphia. The immense the event was heavily publicized by the Chicago Chancery and made headlines around the world. Bernardin reportedly said mass for Cook and his partner, Kevin Neely. Bernardin gave Cook an expensive chalice as a parting gift. In an April 18, 1996 interview with the Georgia, Georgia Bulletin, the diocesan paper of the Archdiocese of Atlanta, Bernardin said that not only did he reconcile Cook at the December meeting, but he also recon reconciled Stephen and the church. Bernardin said that the dying cook was very angry with the church and felt alienated, but that God used him as his instrument in helping him overcome those feelings of isolation and betrayal. He was able to die a beautiful death, concluded Cardinal Bernardin. Stephen Cook died of AIDS-related complications in September 1995. 
the estate of the former penniless cook, estimated to be in the range of $3 million, was divided between Cook's long-suffering mother, who never gave up hope that her son would return to the faith, his sister, and his lover. Cardinal Bernadette followed Cook to the grave on November 14, 1996. The Windy City Gay, Gay Chorus sang at Bernadette's wake at Holy Name Cathedral, the first time that the male homosexual group was invited to perform on church property. Thus, even in death, Colonel Bernardin continued to promote the interests of the homosexual collective. Reflections on the cook Bernardin affair. The following scenario of the cook Bernardin cook, the following scenario of the Bernardin cook affair, based on a preponderance of evidence in the case, is put forth for the reader's consideration. Friends and classmates of Stephen Cook from his elementary and high school days recall that Cook exhibited characteristics commonly associated with homosexual leanings, although there is no evidence that he ever acted on these impulses prior to his enrollment at St. Gregory Seminary. Sexual predators like Harsham have special aptitude for honing in on vulnerable youth like Cook. I believe that the priest carefully groomed young Cook over a period of time, making overt force unnecessary. In a technical sense, that Harsham could rationalize that he was not guilty of rape or physical assault, uh, since Cook consented to the acts. Harsham took, Harsham fed Cook's immature ego by telling him how special he was and convincing him that homosexual acts with priests was a privilege, not a sin. Little wonder that Cook was reported by fellow seminarians to be full of himself when he entered the seminary after graduation from high school. It must have been a bitter pill for Cook to swallow when he realized that, the, that Harsham had exploited him and that he did not have a vocation for the priesthood after all. By this time, he was already caught up in alcohol, drugs, and homosex. Cook sought Silas in the arms of the homosexual collective. At what point Cook hooked up with Bernardin is still unknown. The Winona seminarians who received settlements from Bernardin and other prelates report that in the 1980s, they saw Cook in Bernardin's company. Harsham may have acted on his own or may have pimped for Bernardin as Cook charged. In any case, I believe that Bernardin's claim that he did not know Cook was blatantly false. At some point in his life, Cook was Bernardin's willing sex partner and traveling companion. Then in 1990, Cook found himself in dire straits. He learned that he was HIV positive. He was in a desperate need, was in desperate need of money to buy drugs that might extend his life. The airways were filled with news of clerical pederasty. Cook recalled his sexual seduction and initiation into homosex by Harsham at St. Gregory when he was a young man. Were Cook's recollections connected to the repressed memory syndrome? They, they may have been, although my opinion is that they were not. Cook was in his late teens when he met Harsham and true repressed memory is almost always associated with trauma inflicted at a very young age. My guess is that Cook's memories of St. Gregory were never far from his consciousness 
especially after he learned that he had aged and had time to reflect on the events that led up to that terrible reality. It was at this time that Cook made up his mind to sue Harsham and the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Adding Bernadine to his lawsuit may or may not have been an afterthought, but it proved to be his ace in the hole. Involving Cardinal Bernadine would certainly boost any settlement reached with the Archdiocese, and he desperately needed money. The fact that he had had a voluntary sexual relationship with the Cardinal during his adult life would ensure a certain degree of protection from any countersuit. Bernadine's East Superior Street lawyers might consider bringing against him. It would also protect Cook's lawyers from Rule 11, a provision of the federal, rule, federal rules of civil procedure that permits a federal judge to levy financial penalties against lawyers who bring frivolous or, in, or insupportable lawsuits. In the end, perhaps God, perhaps Cook figured that Colonel Bernadine owed him that much. Now switching to the page. Chapter 16, Homosexuality and Religious Orders, Introduction. We, the Christian Brothers, as the religious community, are one of the few existing organizations that might provide a stable setting for working out homosexual love. The existing organization of Brothers has not been accepting of homosexual expression in the past. There is still a problem of structuring the organization to allow for this variation. Nonetheless, it should not be necessary to exclude a person because he has developed a homosexual love for someone within or without the organization. For homosexual people who might wish to associate with us, we could provide aid or at least protection from repression. There is no immediate solution for the person of homosexual orientation. An organization of religious brotherhood, it is an organization of religious brotherhood is a natural bridge for the meeting of straight and gay worlds. Gabriel Moran, FSC, 1977, Christian Brothers. For Jerome, commenting on Galatians 5.9, a little, little leaven says, cut off all the decayed flesh, expel the mangy sheep from the fold, lest the whole house, the whole paste, the whole body, the whole flock, burn, perish, rot, die, Arius was but one spark in Alexandra, but as that spark was not at once put out, the whole earth was laid waste by its flame. St. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologica. It is one of the truly tragic marks of our age that many religious orders, once the glory of the Roman Catholic Church, have become vehicles for the destruction of the Catholic priesthood and the epicenter of the homosexual collective within the church. The charge that the homosexual collective in the United States took root in Catholic religious institutes and congregations before the diocesan priesthood can be verified from a number of different sources, including statements from both opponents and proponents of the homosexual collective. For example, former oblate priest Richard Wagner, who went from a religious to a producer of homosexual porno films, 
affirmed in a 1981 study, gay Catholic priests, that the homosexual movement in the Catholic Church began in religious orders, not the diocesan priesthood. In 1982, in the Homosexual Network, Father Ruol Rueda pronounced, documented the important role that many main religious orders have played in embracing, sustaining, and financing the homosexual collective. These orders include the Jesuits, Franciscans, Dominicans, Salvatorians, Benedictines, Christian Brothers, Zaverian Brothers, Holy Cross Priests, Paulist Capitans, Oblitz of St. Francis de Sales, and Oblitz of Mary Immaculate. At least 57 U.S.-based or, or, 57 U.S.-based religious orders, institutes, and congregations have publicly supported the pro-homosexual activities and programs of the Catholic Coalition for Gay Civil Rights and or New Ways Ministry. Five, five Catholic religious orders and institutes operating in the United States are covered in depth in this chapter. The Order of Friars Minor Franciscans, the Society of Jesus Jesuits, the Order of Preachers Dominicans, the Society of the Divine Savior Salvatorians, and the Society of St. John. There is also a short report on the Legionaries of Christ. Before examining specific religious orders, however, let us look at the special nature, structure, and rules of religious orders that distinguish them from the secular or diocesan priesthood with which most readers are likely to be more familiar. Religious orders and the evangelical councils. Religious orders in the Roman Catholic Church are institutes of consecrated life distinguished by the perpetual observance of the evangelical councils of perfect chastity voluntary poverty and obedience to lawful authority, and the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. The oldest of the religious orders are the monastic orders, which took root in the East under St. Basil the Great, 329 to 379 AD, father of Oriental monasticism, and St. Benedict of Nursia, 480 to 547 AD, father of Western monasticism. Dominating the Middle Ages were the mendicant orders of St. Dominic and St. Francis, which practiced the evangelical councils and theological virtues within the framework that embraced both the contemplative and active spiritual life. There were also the military orders that dated from the 12th century, whose members, while observing all the essential obligations of traditional religious life, had as their main objective the armed defense of Christ and the Holy Land, and finally the hospitaller orders, whose members were vowed to perpetual chastity and service of the sick and poor. Until modern times, the foundation underlying all religious life was that man should deny himself, not realize or actualize himself. The vows taken by candidates for religious orders are not mere negations, but a positive affirmation of Jesus' invitation for the, to the first apostle. Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men, Mark 1.17. In addition to religious 
who bind themselves by perpetual or permanent vows. There are some religious institutes commonly referred to as societies of apostolic life, such as the Oratorians of St. Philip Neri, the Paulists, and the Sulpicians, that do not profess vows, although they live the common life of religious. Some orders offer a fourth vow. The Jesuits, for example, have a fourth vow of direct obedience to the Pope for special missions. Besides, beside the common end of religious life that makes it a school of perfection, each religious order has a special charism or calling connected to a particular ministry of the, in the church, such as the care and occupational training of orphans, Christian brothers, education, Jesuits, preaching Dominicans, and the contemplative life Benedictines. Missionary enterprises for the propaganda of the faith have traditionally been entrusted to religious orders, such as the Holy Cross Fathers and Maryland Fathers. In times past, religious order priests and monks, like nuns, were always instantaneously recognizable by their unique habit or style of dress. Religious find themselves to live in community in accordance with the rules and constitutions ratified by their order and approved by the Holy See. They owe their obedience to their provincial or prior, who in turn is directly responsible to the superior of the order, who usually resides in Rome. All recognized religious orders fall under the authority of the Sacred Congregation for Religious and Secular Institutes. Ultimately, they are responsible to the Supreme Pontiff, who has the power to call a religious order into existence or suppress it completely. Religious may hold ecclesiastical offices in the church, including bishops, bishoprics, cardinalates, and even the office of Supreme Pontiff. However, there have been occasions when the head of an order has opposed the selection of religious to higher office outside the order as the practice tends to diminish potential sources of leadership and inspiration necessary to maintaining the vigor and integrity of the order. It has not escaped public notice that Pope John Paul II has placed religious at the head of two of the largest dioceses in the nation, Archbishop Sean O'Malley of the Order of Friars Minor Capuchins in Boston and Francis Cardinal George of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate in Chicago, in an attempt to heal the two war-weary seas that have been plagued by clerical sexual abuse and systematic cover-ups by ecclesiastical authorities. Today, there are between 15,000 and 20,000 male religious in the United States, representing more than 120 different orders, congregations, and societies of apostolic life. This means about one third of the priests in the United States belong to religious orders rather than the diocesan priesthood. In large dioceses, male religious represent a significant portion of the clerical workforce. For example, in the Philadelphia Archdiocese, there are 564 diocesan priests and 392 religious order priests representing 31 religious orders. The single largest order operating in the Archdiocese is the Augustinian order that staffs and operates five parishes, two high schools, and Villanova College.
although order priests do not owe their obedience directly to the bishop in whose diocese they reside and work, the ordinary of the diocese must approve each and every religious that works in the diocese. A bishop has the canonical power to order an individual religious or, in extreme cases, the entire, an entire order out of his diocese. Before the dispute reaches this point, however, the Holy See generally steps in to mediate the dispute that may involve a case of moral turpitude in the case of an individual priest or brother, but is more likely to be a power or financial issue if the whole order is involved. Religious order priests differ from diocesan priests in a number of significant ways. Most order priests take permanent vows. Diocesan priests voluntarily make a promise of celibacy as required by church law and a promise of obedience to their bishop at the time of ordination. They are, however, not bound by vows of poverty. Seculars earn a modest salary and are permitted to retain their own financial assets, including inheritance, inheritances, rather than turn them over to the order, as is the case with religious. Religious traditionally live in community, while diocesan priests generally reside at their parish rectory, either alone or with other priests. In recent years, however, a large number of religious and some diocesan priests have been given permission to live alone in private apartments apart from their community or parish. As one might expect, there is often a degree of tension in a diocese between diocesan priests and religious who have different structures of authority and different goals and tasks. On one hand, religious orders have always fiercely guarded their independence from the ordinary and whose diocese they resign. On the other hand, since they necessarily have to live in a given diocese and abide by the rules and regulations laid down by the sitting bishop, many religious want a voice in the decision-making processes of the diocese. At the national level, religious orders are not formally a part of the U.S. CCB structure, although they are represented through various USCCB committees. The Conference of Major Superiors of Men, CMSM, founded in 1956 and canonically approved in 1959 by the Sacred Congregation for Religious and Secular Institutes, is the national representative for body, a national representative body for men in religious and apostolic communities in the United States. The regular membership of the CMSM includes 258 major superiors representing some 120 religious orders and institutes. The CMSM maintains formal ties with the USCCB, the National Assembly of Religious Brothers, the Leadership Conference of Women and Religious, and other national agencies. Religious orders fall in hard times. Although the rot infecting Catholic Religious orders in the United States and Europe was well advanced by the time Pope John XXIII opened the Second Vatican Council. The decline in quantity and quality of religious orders accelerated in the post-conciliar era. As Romano Amario has observed, all traditional religious orders have been decimated, great and small, male and female, contemplative and active. From 1966 to 1977, 
the numbers of religious fell worldwide from 208,000 to 165,000. Vatican II did not reform religious orders. It disemboweled them. The constitutions and rules of religious orders, even those that have their roots in antiquity, have been mutilated beyond recognition. Historically, the real, historically the term reform in the church meant stricter rules, observances, discipline, and austerity, not less. The ultimate goal of religious was an increase in holiness, not worldliness. The original charism of the orders, founders, has been abandoned in favor of the spirit of novelty. Stability in the form of strict community observances, once the hallmark of religious life has given way to individual mobility on the part of religious that makes true community life impossible. Exclustration, i.e. permission for a religious to live outside the community has been granted by religious superiors on a hereto unprecedented scale. As with diocesan seminaries, religious houses of formation adopted new modes of living out the spiritual life with an emphasis on ease and lax discipline, especially in morals. Chastity is both despised in theory and neglected in practice. Religious life is no longer a life of poverty, penance, mortification and obedience to lawful authority. It is a life of becoming a person. Nowhere is the paradigm shift in religious life more noticeable than in the acceptance of homosexuals and pederasts as candidates for religious orders. Colonizing Religious Orders In the United States, the homosexual engine in the church has been fueled by religious orders rather than the diocesan clergy. Religious orders, which by nature are self-enclosed and self-regulating, have become a prime target of the homosexual collective. They have proven to be a virtual gold mine in terms of the vast resources they have put at the disposal of the collective. Although the individual religious may take a permanent vow of poverty, the local province or priory of well-known established religious orders and their corresponding international corporate entity in Rome possess vast monetary assets. The inheritance of deceased members of a religious community usually goes to the order. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, volume, uh, section 4, 1790, 1791, 1793, Seventeen ninety one. This ignorance can often be imputed to personal responsibility. This is the case when a man takes little trouble to find out what is true and good, or when conscience is by degrees almost blinded through the habit of committing sin. In such cases the person is culpable for the evil he commits. seventeen ninety two. Ignorance of Christ and his gospel 
bad example given by others, enslavement to one's passions, assertion of a mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience, rejection of the church's authority and her teaching, lack of conversion and of charity, these can all these can be at the source of errors of judgment in moral conduct. 1793. If, on the contrary, the ignorance is invincible, or the moral subject is not responsible for his erroneous judgment, the evil committed by the person cannot be imputed to him. It remains his no, it remains no less an evil, a privation, a disorder. But one must there one must therefore work to correct the errors of moral con conscience. 1794. A good and pure conscience is enlightened by true faith. For charity proceeds at the same time from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The more a correct conscience prevails, the more do persons and groups turn aside from blind choice and try to be guided by objective standards of moral conduct. And this is all that I had to read or comment on. This is all that I have to read and comment on today. And so I'll end my podcast here. And may God bless this podcast. And may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.